Section 17 of La Samoire. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Lazarus. La Samoire by Emile Zola. Translated by Ernest A. Vizitelli. Fourth part of Chapter 4. Coupeau turned round and took back the iron that Zidor was holding for him. But just as the concierge was moving off, she caught sight of Gervaise on the other side of the way, holding Nana by the hand. She was already raising her head to tell the zinc worker, when the young woman closed her mouth by an energetic gesture, and in a low voice so as not to be heard up there, she told her of her fear. She was afraid by showing herself suddenly, of giving her husband a shock which might make him lose his balance. During the four years she had only been once to fetch him at his work. That day was the second time. She could not witness it. Her blood turned cold when she beheld her old man between heaven and earth, in places where even the sparrows would not venture. "'No doubt it's not pleasant,' murmured Madame Bosch. "'My husband's a tailor, so I have none of those terrors.' "'If you only knew in the early days,' said Gervaise again, "'I had frights from morning till night.' I was always seeing him on a stretcher with his head smashed. Now I don't think of it so much. One gets used to everything. Bread must be earned. All the same, it's a precious dear loaf, for one risks one's bones more than is fair. And she left off speaking, hiding Nana in her skirt, fearing a cry from the little one. Very pale, she looked up in spite of herself. At that moment, Coupeau was soldering the extreme edge of the sheet close to the gutter. He slid down as far as possible, but without being able to reach the edge, then he risked himself with those slow movements peculiar to workmen. For an instant he was immediately over the pavement, no longer holding on, all absorbed in his work, and from below one could see the little white flame of the solder frizzling up beneath the carefully welded iron. Gervaise, speechless, her throat contracted with anguish, had clasped her hands together and held them up in a mechanical gesture of prayer. But she breathed freely as Coupeau got up and returned back along the roof, without hurrying himself, and taking the time to spit once more onto the street. "'Ah, so you've been playing the spy on me,' cried he, gaily on beholding her. "'She's been making a stupid of herself, eh, Madame Bosch? She wouldn't call to me. Wait a bit, I shall have finished in ten minutes.' All that remained to do was to fix the top of the chimney a mere nothing. The laundress and the concierge waited on the pavement, discussing the neighbourhood and giving an eye to Nana to prevent her from dabbling in the gutter, where she wanted to look for little fishes, and the two women kept glancing up at the roof, smiling and nodding their heads, as though to imply that they were not losing patience. The old woman opposite had not left her window, and had continued watching the man and waiting. "'Whatever can she have to look at, that old she-goat?' said Madame Bosch. What a mug she has! One could hear the loud voice of the zinc worker up above singing, Ah, it's nice to gather strawberries. Bending over his bench, he was now artistically cutting out his zinc. With his compasses, he traced a line and he detached a large fan shaped piece with the aid of a pair of curved shears. Then he lightly bent this fan with his hammer into the form of a pointed mushroom. Zidor was again blowing the charcoal in the chafing dish. The sun was setting behind the house in a brilliant rosy light, which was gradually becoming paler and turning to a delicate lilac. 
and at this quiet hour of the day, right up against the sky, the silhouettes of the two workmen, looking inordinately large with the dark lines of the bench, and the strange profile of the bellows, stood out from the limpid background of the atmosphere. When the chimney-top was got into shape, Coupeau called out, Zidor, the irons! But Zidor had disappeared. The zinc-worker swore and looked about for him, even calling him through the open skylight of the loft. At length he discovered him on a neighbouring roof two houses off. The young rogue was taking a walk, exploring the environs, his fair scanty locks blowing in the breeze, his eyes blinking as they beheld the immensity of Paris. "'Why, say, lazy bones, do you think you're having a day in the country?' asked Coupeau in a rage. "'You're like Monsieur Baranger, composing verses, perhaps? Will you give me those irons? Did anyone ever see such a thing?' strolling about on the housetops. Why not bring your sweetheart at once and tell her of your love? Will you give me those irons, you confounded little shirker? He finished his soldering and called to Gervaise. There, it's done. I'm coming down. The chimney-pot to which he had to fix the flue was in the middle of the roof. Gervaise, who was no longer uneasy, continued to smile as she followed his movements. Nana, amused all on a sudden by the view of her father, clapped her little hands. She had seated herself on the pavement to see the better up there. "'Papa, papa!' called she, and with all her might. "'Papa, just look!' The zinc-worker wished to lean forward, but his foot slipped. Then, suddenly, stupidly, like a cat with its legs entangled, he rolled and descended the slight slope of the roof without being able to grab hold of anything. "'Oh, mon Dieu!' he cried in a choked voice. And he fell. His body described a gentle curve, turned twice over on itself, and came smashing into the middle of the street with a dull thud of a bundle of clothes thrown from on high. Gervaise, stupefied, her throat rent by one great cry, stood holding up her arms. Some passers-by hastened to the spot. A crowd soon formed. Madame Bosch, utterly upset, her knees bending under her, took Nana in her arms to hide her head and prevent her seeing. Meanwhile, the little old woman opposite quietly closed her window, as though satisfied. Four men ended by carrying Coupeau into a chemist's at the corner of Rue des Poissonnières, and he remained there on a blanket in the middle of the shop. Whilst they sent to the Lariboisière hospital for a stretcher, he was still breathing. Gervaise, sobbing, was kneeling on the floor beside him, her face smudged with tears, stunned and unseeing. Her hands would reach to feel her husband's limbs with the utmost gentleness. Then she would draw back as she had been warned not to touch him. But a few seconds later she would touch him to assure herself that he was still warm, feeling somehow that she was helping him. When the stretcher at length arrived and they talked of starting for the hospital, she got up, saying violently, "'No, no, not the hospital. We live in the Rue Neuve de la Goutte d'Or.' It was useless for them to explain to her that the illness would cost her a great deal of money if she took her husband home. She obstinately repeated, Rue Neuve de la Goutte d'Or, I, I will show you the house. What can it matter to you? I've got money. Here's my husband, isn't he? He's mine, and I want him at home. And they had to take Coupeau to his own home. When the stretcher was carried through the crowd, which was crushing up against the chemist's shop, the women of the neighborhood were excitedly talking of Gervaise. She limped the doll, but all the same she had some pluck. She would be sure to save her old man, whilst at the hospital the doctors let the patients die who were very bad, so as not to have the bother of trying to cure them. 
Madame Boche, after taking Nana home with her, returned and gave her account of the accident with interminable details, and still feeling agitated with the emotion she had passed through. "'I was going to buy a leg of mutton. I was there. I saw him fall,' repeated she. "'It was all through the little one. He turned to look at her and, and bang. Oh, good heavens! Oh, I never want to see such a sight again. However, I must be off to get my leg of mutton.' For a week, Coupeau was very bad. The family, the neighbors, everyone expected to see him turn for the worse at any moment. The doctor, a very expensive doctor who charged five francs for each visit, apprehended internal injuries, and these words filled everyone with fear. It was said in the neighborhood that the zinc worker's heart had been injured by the shock. Gervaise alone, looking pale through her nights of watching, serious and resolute, shrugged her shoulders. Her old man's right leg was broken, everyone knew that. It would be set for him, and that was all. As for the rest, the injured heart, there was nothing. She knew how to restore a heart with ceaseless care. She was certain of getting him well, and displayed magnificent faith. She stayed close by him, and caressed him gently during the long bouts of fever without a moment of doubt. She was on her feet continuously for a whole week, completely absorbed by her determination to save him. She forgot the street outside, the entire city, and even her own children. On the ninth day, the doctor finally said that Coupeau would live. Gervaise collapsed into her chair, her body limp from fatigue. That night she consented to sleep for two hours, with her head against the foot of the bed. Coupeau's accident had created quite a commotion in the family. Mother Coupeau passed the nights with Gervaise, but as early as nine o'clock she fell asleep on a chair. Every evening, on returning from work, Madame Larau went a long round out of her way to inquire how her brother was getting on. At first, the Lorilleur had called two or three times a day, offering to sit up and watch, and even bringing an easy chair for Gervaise. Then it was not long before there were disputes as to what was the proper way to nurse invalids. Madame Lorilleur said that she had saved enough people's lives to know how to go about it. She accused the young wife of pushing her aside, of driving her away from her own brother's bed. Certainly that clump-clump ought to be concerned about Coupeau's getting well, but if she hadn't gone to Rue de la Nation to disturb him at his job, he would never have fallen. Only the way she was taking care of him, she would certainly finish him. When Gervaise saw that Coupeau was out of danger, she ceased guarding his bedside with so much jealous fierceness. Now they could no longer kill him, and she let people approach without mistrust. The family invaded the room. The convalescence would be a very long one. The doctor had talked of four months. Then, during the long hours, the zinc worker slept. The Lorilleur talked of Gervaise as a fool. She hadn't done any good by having her husband at home. At the hospital they would have cured him twice as quickly. Lorilleur would have liked to have been ill, to have caught no matter what, just to show her that she did not hesitate for a moment to go to La Riboisière. Madame Lorilleur knew a lady who had just come from there. Well, she had chicken to eat morning and night. Again and again the two of them went over their estimate of how much four months of convalescence would cost. Workdays lost, the doctor and medicines, and afterwards good wine and fresh meat. If the coupeau only used up their small savings, they would be very lucky indeed. They would probably have to go into debt. Well, that was to be expected, and it was their business. They had no right to expect any help from the family, which couldn't afford the luxury of keeping an invalid at home. 
It was just Clump Clump's bad luck, wasn't it? Why couldn't she have done as others did and let a man be taken to hospital? This just showed how stuck up she was. One evening, Madame Lorilleur had the spitefulness to ask Gervais suddenly, Well, and your shop, when are you going to take it? Yes, chuckled Lorilleur, the landlord's still waiting for you. Gervaise was astonished. She had completely forgotten the shop, but she saw the wicked joy of those people at the thought that she would no longer be able to take it, and she was bursting with anger. From that evening, in fact, they watched for every opportunity to twit her about her hopeless dream. When anyone spoke of some impossible wish, they would say that it might be realized on the day that Gervaise started in business, in a beautiful shop opened onto the street and behind her back they would laugh fit to split their sides. She did not like to think such an unkind thing, but really the Lorilleur now seemed to be very pleased at Coupeau's accident, as it prevented her setting up as a laundress in the Rue de la Goutte d'Or. Then she also wished to laugh and show them how willingly she parted with the money for the sake of curing her husband. Each time she took the savings bank book from beneath the glass clock tower in their presence, she would say gaily, I'm going out. I'm going to rent my shop. She had not been willing to withdraw the money all at once. She took out a hundred francs at a time so as not to keep such a pile of gold and silver in her drawer. Then, too, she vaguely hoped for some miracle, some sudden recovery, which would enable them not to part with the entire sum. At each journey to the savings bank and on her return, she added up on the piece of paper the money they had still left there. It was merely for the sake of order. Their bank account might be getting smaller all the time, yet she went on with her quiet smile and common-sense attitude, keeping the account straight. It was a consolation to be able to use this money for such a good purpose, to have it when faced with their misfortune. End of fourth part of chapter four. Recording by David Lazarus.